And we're back with another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. My name is Seth Creekmore, but many people call me Creek, and I'm with my two co-hosts, Maria, who's a Munita, and Mario Sakura. And today we are talking about the strategy, the type of seven. And we're here today with Becky Gorman. Becky, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I'm I'm looking forward to this. And I appreciate being invited. Awesome. And you you've been working with Maria Jose and Mario for how long now? I'm thinking it's about four years or three and a half, three and a half to four years. Okay. Uh, starting in about two 19, 2019, I believe. I've worked with the Enneagram for 22 years. Okay, wow. That's So uh, can you give us a story of that, both the Enneagram and working with Mario and Jose? Sure. I started working with the Enneagram in 2000. I first studied with David Daniels, and then I studied with uh, Don and Russ uh, doing some of their week-long events. And then I live in Minneapolis. We have lots of Almost all the leaders come here at some point in time. I was the, on the original board here in Minneapolis when we got started. And so I've studied through that and as well as the conferences with every teacher there is practically, not entirely, mm. uh, but most of them and all of the major ones. About 2019, I was in a place where I really wanted something more. I was lacking something and I wasn't sure what it was. So I started reading articles on, on Mario's website. And I would find that he would talk about things and had the philosophy similar, very similar to mine, if not identical words to things that I was saying to people in my coaching practice with leaders. That really got my attention. I had heard about him and heard about the instinctual biases, but I didn't know really anything about them. But this led me to reach out to him. So I sent him an email and told him some of those things. He responded quite quickly. And things went from there. So within a couple of months, uh, well, I started working with him and talking with him by phone. But then in a couple of months, I went to Madrid and did some training with them there. And one thing led to another. And I went to also Egypt and did the conference there. And I did some module training there. And it just evolved. I just find that everything that they talk about makes a lot of sense to me. And I had run into areas of the Enneagram and working both personally, but also with leaders in teams that were falling apart in the explanations of how to look at type. This began to feel like, okay, now this makes sense and it holds together. So I stuck with it and it's it's my thing now. I don't, I don't even review things from the past, to be honest. Mm, interesting. What were some of the things that were falling apart? Particularly the head, heart, body. I found that when I would describe that to people, often people would get confused. And then I would start feeling awkward because I could feel it myself. And it, it was too, it, there were odd categories to me. They still mm. are. And way limiting and not really accurate for humans, <laughs> in my view. Mm. And then also I found the wings, I never could get those. I even tried one time with one team to go in lots of detail with the wings. That just got so cumbersome that it was nearly impossible to help people with it. So I found that many of those kind of approaches added to the base types was actually confusing and it was too much complexity. And I found the individuals and teams had more difficulty working with the information 
with the instinctual biases, I don't find that. I can start with them. I can get on board with that, add to that with the nine types, and things make much quicker sense and tangible sense, but also tangible accessibility to do something with it. And it's easier for me to coach people because I can help them get more clear more quickly to literal practices. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and how are you How are you using the Enneagram today? I uh, use it all the time for myself because <laughs> oh, okay. um, yes. I'm really big on uh, believer and commitment to self-development. And I coach leaders and I coach leadership teams to work with the Enneagram. I also have group of private clients that have either been in former corporations I've worked with and they just continue with me after that ends or people that have known me when I was teaching at the university or other places and they hang with me or come and go but they often come back. For those folks a lot of times it's more personal development because they may or not be in leadership positions but I just have a philosophy that we're all leaders in our lives so nothing is for me boxed up separately we're all developing who we are and who we bring to our leadership role matters and who we bring to our lives matters wow that's great mario can you give us a quick overview of seven and then i'd love to hear from becky how she describes it so uh, but before we get into that I've, I've got to ask so you know becky you've been working with maria jose and i for a while now which one of us do you like better <laughs> <laughs> It's just between us. I, I, yeah, you know, if it, no one will if hear it, this. Say it, Becky. All right, so, uh, <laughs> Feel free to we say We cannot it. move on until she answers. <laughs> Enneagram type seven, striving to feel excited. This is somebody who's, really, it's, it's somebody looking for stimulation. Okay, this is what is their sort of guiding feeling. If I'm feeling some sort of stimulation that I get through some experience of the world, then things feel right. And that's that's what these strategies are all about, right? We're striving to feel a certain way. And uh, so with the seven, it, it, we don't want to think of excitement as, oh, I have to be at a party all the time or I have to be, you know, doing something dramatic and extreme, jumping out of airplanes. It's just I need to feel a bit of a buzz in some way. And we've played around with the words, you know, originally one of the words that we thought of that might actually have been more accurate was striving to feel stimulated. Yeah, there's a connotation to that in English, at least, that, uh, you know, doesn't quite work. That You know, the children in the class will start to giggle and titter if you, you know, use that term. And uh, Maria Jose will say that it's the opposite in Spanish, right? Is that fair? What do you call it in Spanish, Maria Jose? Uh, estimulado. So we use, we do use stimulated. But that has right. less of a connotation than the excited translation, which is excitado, for the mm -hmm. exact same reason. The common literature, and I think the Enneagram is, I'm sorry, the seven is one of the types that's often misunderstood. And it's understood at a very superficial level in a lot of the Enneagram literature. And I think one of those reasons is because I'm not aware of any popular authors who are sevens. You know, I think the, the types are best described generally by people of that type, right? And so uh, we get insights into a lot of the different types that we don't necessarily get about the seven that I'm aware of. But we often see the public face of the seven, which is the more outgoing version, right? It's somebody who is optimistic, who is upbeat, who is energetic, 
on the outside and in their uh, in their engagement with the world. But they're actually, you know, not always optimistic. They're not always happy. They're not always satisfied. They're often, in fact, kind of frustrated that things aren't as they are. And they can really feel like there's a, um, it's a burden to have the public persona of the one whose role it is to cheer everyone up, right? To make sure that others are happy. Because one of the ways that sevens feel happy is if the people around them feel happy. So, and that comes with a burden, right? I mean, it makes, means I have to make effort to keep other people up. It means I have to act ways that I don't necessarily feel. I have to be more optimistic than I really am. I have to be happier than I really am. I have to be lighter than I really feel. So uh, the sevens are often misunderstood. And I find that living with sevens, which I do, gives a deep in, deeper insight into what's really going on. Right? Mm-hmm. They're not always happy and optimistic and cheerful. But it is their public persona. And, and, and I think it's legitimate too, right? They are looking for that stimulation. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there, there are the connecting points here. Um, uh, point five is, is what we call the neglected strategy, striving to feel detached. And that's not to suggest that sevens never detach. In fact, they do. Most sevens, in my experience, are nesters. Right, even even the navigating sevens can be nesters. Right, they want to kind of just withdraw and recharge, re-energize. But you really see this in the preserving and transmitting sevens. But one of the challenges they have is the the FOMO thing, the fear of missing out. Right, there's something happening out there. There's some stimulation. Uh, they can they can struggle to detach from choices. Right, if I choose this, then I miss out on that. So they can wrestle with this uh, concept of detachment that we see at point five. The other connecting point is point one, striving to feel perfect. And that's what we call a support strategy for the seven. And it helps ensure that the seven can be excited if they have all their ducks in a row, right? If things are as they should be, I can relax and enjoy myself. But if things are not as they should be, then I feel like I'm losing the opportunity to enjoy myself. And so I can kind of rigid and finger wagging and, uh, you know, anal retentive about certain things. But it's all in support of striving to feel excited. So, Becky, how you told us how um, your story with the Enneagram, but how did you find out about your preferred strategy, type seven? <laughs> You know, I back, I think when I started in 2000, and I'm, I believe I took David Daniels' nine paragraph, and I knew immediately, and there's never been a change. Nothing else even was remotely close then to the seven. So, I, I, it, everything in that resonated. I knew it was home. So, do you, mm. can you remember what, I mean, at least a couple of, traits or things that were described that you said, this is me? Well, that basic nature of the seven that that Mario was just talking about, that optimism, that enjoyment, that enthusiasm, that love of life. There's this joie, joie de vivre that you just is in yourselves and it's hard not to even see why everyone else doesn't feel that same thing. Also, the sense of 
of options and this FOMO thing. It is, it, we laugh about it. It's really not all that funny <laughs> sometimes because <laughs> it's, it's very painful actually because there's a quandary I find myself in. So the options things made a huge uh, sense to me as well. I, I just can't think of anything that didn't stand out as very, very familiar. I'm curious, Becky. So, you know, striving to feel excited, striving to feel stimulated. Is the stimulation always in a positive direction or, or can there be like more always in a happy direction or is there a stimulation in watching a sad movie or, or something like that? Like a four, you mean? I love that. <laughs> I love that question. You are right. I mean, that's a really good question because it's mental, physical, emotional, spiritual. It's depth for me personally. I can't speak to all sevens and any of the thing I'll say today, but for me, it's very energizing. When people say stimulating, it sounds like if it's a high level of charge that's effervescent, which is true. I feel like a fountain often, and sevens is a fountain. But there's something very stimulating to me to have deep, meaningful conversations, which I do all day with coaching. Hmm. So it really suits my nature to have something worthwhile. That's a stimulation. And I love that you asked that because I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. Hmm. But it's very much a feeling of aliveness for me. Now, I'm yeah. navigating sevens, so it could play into that where those play together. But, uh, so I don't know if preserving and transmitting would say that same thing for themselves. I just had a recent conversation with someone who wanted to know me, and there was a demand behind that, which was uncomfortable. I seemed to want to know, like, what did I do for Thanksgiving? What did I do for Christmas? And to me, that's very unstimulating. And so I, I was sharing deep philosophical and spiritual things. And I said, these are the ways I want to be known. And to that, that alivens me. And I'm energized at the end of a long day or a long conversation because of that. Hmm. So it's just, it's something, something that is happening that is meaningful, that is perpetually happening. It's more in that vein. And the learning and the input and the exchange and all of the elements that come. Mm. <laughs> I can get excited talking about it. Um, <laughs> it looks to other people like it's not dynamic, but that's mm. not how I feel on the inside at all. It's not an EDM party every day. <laughs> no. It's not a rave. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Translate for us old folks there. No, I, was, I thought it was a language issue. It's a generational issue. No. <laughs> so you mentioned the navigating piece. How do you see yourself as different from the other from the other two? Well, it's really helpful. I had thought I was a transmitter because I got confused with my enthusiasm, but Mario helped me see that differently. And that was a breakthrough that just made everything fall into place, both from the past and current. So the way I see myself as different or what stands out about myself, whether it was when I was practicing medicine or as coaching, for instance, even in conversations with friends, I really care about listening to understand that individual. I want to understand what's going on here. I think I even said to Mario when we first met, I always feel when I'm talking with people that there's this white 
canvas that's unpainted yet. And as they talk, they're sketching and painting on that canvas. And the longer I listen, the more clear the landscape is to me. And now I know how to respond. I know how to problem solve. I know what steps to take, what questions to ask, how to be with this individual, because now I have greater experience. And maybe they're shading that as they keep talking. So there's more vividness, there's more color, there's more dimension. I don't, that's how I know myself. I don't know that transmitters and preservers would feel that or not, but I'm imagining that that might be different. So I have no trouble listening a very long time because how would I ever know how to engage if I don't understand? So I can get excited and interrupt people. There's no question about that. My enthusiasm can kick in and then I sound like and maybe behave more like a transmitter at those moments, but it's certainly not. It's just pure enthusiasm. It's funny because, I mean, I hear we're all navigators, but as a navigating one, when I think about that process, because I do the same, I start kind of building that map. But my map seems to me that it's more in black and white than yours. <laughs> like, uh, so... It's much more linear. It is more linear. I mean, there it has depth, it has different things, but dimensions, but color is not something that I had thought about. And, and I think that that's how the seven shows up. It's you navigate, but in a very different way than I do. And the more color and dimension and shading and, and so forth, the, the better it is. You know, I feel like I'm completely involved in the landscape now as, as in that individual or this engagement. Much to the chagrin of preservers and some Enneagram types and maybe transmitters, I love story. I love the detail. I love sharing it. So I can talk and talk and talk sometimes with detail that many people just want the bottom line. I also <laughs> see all manner of interactive uh, behaviors between people, between acti within activities. I can't not see that. So I shared with Mario one time that I was looking out my window of a condo I lived in and there was a building going up and I could see down on the partial roof of one part where the workmen were out there doing their thing. Can't hear them. I can only see them, but I was riveted on how they worked together to move big pieces of equipment or boards or something. I, I just thought, look at how they're doing that. So it could be ants on a sidewalk. It could be anything, but the inner interplay of how things work together among people particularly is so fascinating to me. Hmm. But often if I share that in great detail or minimal detail, preserves and transmitters may be not thrilled with, okay, that's interesting, but I don't know why you're interested <laughs> kind of <laughs> response. And I can't see why wouldn't people find that fascinating. Another story when we had the George Floyd experience here and the National Guard came in and I could look out over the city because of the height of my condo and then I could look at the TV simultaneously. So the National Guard had gotten flown in because things were fires everywhere and it was a, it was a mess um, out of control. And on the television, they showed the street not far from where I live, but I couldn't see it from my place, but I could see what was happening in the sky along with what was happening on the ground. And they showed the protesters walking up this street and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. 
And all at once they came to an intersection not far from me where the National Guard came out of nowhere gradually walking in and very calmly crossed paths and divided that crowd so they could manage the crowd. That was so fascinating to me to see something that was very intense, handled with calmness, with organization, with things I couldn't hear, we could only see. That's another example. I could give you endless examples of what captures my attention. And I think that's all navigating kind of focus. Mm. I did not get excited about the circumstance. So let me clarify that. <laughs> Mario says I was sure. excited. Sure. Um, yeah. I also had no positive, negative judgment about the National Guard, actually. I felt like they were going to bring some order to some things that were chaotic and we needed their support. But I wasn't evaluating, I didn't, I wasn't thinking whether they should be or not should be here or should not be here. What I was enamored with was the elegance of the skillfulness of their behaviors and handling things in a way that de-escalated things. So I was more, if, if excited is the word, <laughs> it, it, it was about the elegance of what centered strong people can do well in the world to handle something difficult. Yeah. When we're talking about the strategies, we're talking about an affective tone that shapes, you know, how we perceive it, how we think about it, how we act in it. So, and when we're talking about excitement, we're not talking about fun, right? I mean, obviously you weren't looking at these protests and all the tragedy related to those as something that was fun. But, you know, even as you're describing it now, we can feel, again, that enthusiasm, right? That, and, and again, not a fun, oh boy, wasn't that cool sort of enthusiasm, but just this uh, heightened energy around the topic that would be different from somebody who wasn't a seven. That is, you know, it's a great example of, again, how these things express themselves, okay? So we have the instinctual bias as the, the set of values, right? It's understand, for navigators, it's understanding the group dynamics. And for sevens, it's getting excited about those things, right? It, 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 Maria Jose will see that and see it very differently because she'll see it through a one lens. She'll be interested in the same fundamental thing, but approach a different way. And, you know, the two of us would do the same. We would bring our own strategy to it, but still be trying to achieve the same end, but through different ways. The difference there, I think, with the when we compare the other two subtypes, it's about what they get excited about. So the preservers get excited about things in the nest. Okay, a preserving seven is going to get, you know, very excited about homewares, for example, right? Uh, uh, Maria Jose and I, he was my friend, but Maria Jose knows him, who uh, we stayed at his home one time, and he was uh, extremely excited about making the morning oatmeal. And he would go on and on about his oatmeal in the morning, right? And just his sevenness would come out in things like that, right? Which you know, seemed bizarre uh, from mm. my lens, but it's what a preserving seven is going to get excited about. Mm. You couldn't believe I didn't like it. Not his. I don't like it in general. <laughs> it was painful. I wish I liked it, but I didn't. <laughs> it was good oatmeal, if you're listening, Dennis. So, yeah. 
So the transmitting seven, on the other hand, is kind of the stereotype of the seven, right? We talk, you know, the preserving seven gets excited about their environment. The navigating seven gets excited about navigating and understanding the landscape, which is a word Becky's used a number of times through the session. The transmitting seven is the stereotype of the seven. It's the more effusive, the more outgoing, the more expressive. And what they get excited about is being able to transmit and being noticed, right? The the transmitting seven really does like attention, even though there's also this pressure they feel when being noticed. Okay. So it's this dichotomy between I need to, I need to stand out in some way. I need to be exciting. I need to hear the cheers of the crowd or the adoration of the audience, but I want them to like me too. I'll give a real quick example. My, my youngest son, who's 13, is a uh, transmitting seven. And this kid, he, he, again, he is the stereotype of the seven. He's the energizer bunny. He's always moving. We have a little basketball court set up for him in our family room because he can't just sit around. He has to be bouncing a ball all the time. And so he plays basketball in the living room on this six-foot court for hours at a time. The other night, he was playing in a basketball game, and he's 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 in eighth grade. He's playing in a league of eighth to twelfth graders. So he's playing against much bigger kids, much older kids, and he hits a three-point shot to tie the game as the score, as the clock goes to zero, right? So he ties the game. There's all these kids watching, all these older kids, and he's just in heaven. (laughs) And some of his friends were there in the audience, and he's prancing around like a peacock, and he's doing little gestures that I'm sure some athlete must do or something, you know, and he's just living in adoration. And then all of a sudden he came alive, right? There was a three minute overtime and he scored 10 points in that three minute overtime because he was just so enthralled with the excitement of this event where all the eyes were on him. And even though he felt the pressure, he was in heaven. Right? Mm-hmm. So the transmitting seven has this thing in them that needs to create a buzz in the environment around them so that they can, you know, feel alive in that way. So, Becky, you are one of the people, not only sevens, but people in general who uh, I know you have worked on yourself. I see you as a very mature person. So I'm wondering how you see... Uh, your strategy coming out in maladaptive ways. What are the things that you see yourself doing or thinking that are not adaptive, that, that do not work for you or for other people around you as a seven? I will preface this by saying I'm not a black and white thinker. So I look at myself and I coach and look at other people on a continuum, always. So it's not am I doing this, is this a problem or not a problem? It's when is it a problem? How is it a problem? With whom is it a problem? So I'll answer with that context with everything I talk about today about this. But So distractibility is a problem. I have my own practices because even if I'm sitting here working on something, I'll get a thought, oh, I need to go do that. And so the distractibility is the speed of my mind, the number of things that come in, and it gets me off track. So I have a practice that says, Becky, you're going to stay and finish this. I've practiced catching that now (laughs) more quickly. You're going to stay and do this, and that will still be there when you get there. That's how I kind of manage that. Otherwise, it 
creates me, creates anxiety in me. I get anxious when I realize there's all these things and now more popping up that I might need to work with. And that distractibility then creates the anxiety that I didn't finish that thing. Now, everything doesn't get completely finished before going to the next, but you know what I mean in general. So that's one example. My enthusiasm for people is challenging sometimes. I can talk freely and easily. I've been that way forever. <laughs> First one in class with my hand up, and I have plenty to say. And the navigating part helps me with that because I have learned how to manage that. But when I'm excited, I just talk freely and talk and talk and talk. And really, just within the last week, a friend of mine says, I don't know how to get you to stop talking. So, clearly, <laughs> clearly, it is a problem for people, and sometimes I see that, and sometimes I see it and don't care because I want to talk, and sometimes I feel badly mm. because I realize I'm not making space for other people. When I'm mm. coaching, it's the opposite. I can sit for 10, 15 minutes and never say a word because the landscape is getting painted for me. That never really runs into problems for me. It's more in my personal life. Or if I'm super excited about something. So that's another example. Options. Where options are really helpful to me um, is both in practicing medicine and coaching. I can help people find their resilience because of that. I immediately can see all the doorways that we could get out of this dilemma through. And I can offer them if they're interested. I can work with the ones they offer and expand their options so that they can sort out what's the best one for them. This is where it's really a fantastic asset. It's for my own resilience. I think victim is when you lose sight that you have any options. I can always find a way, even if a lot of them I would never want to exercise. However, the options can make me very anxious also and other people frustrated because I can generate far more quickly than any of us could ever think to do or want to do. And it's confusing and I can confuse myself. I can confuse other people. So I have to really pay attention. How many options and what options are helpful for myself? When are they helpful for another person? And I have really learned to pair that back because just because I don't say them all doesn't mean they're not all generating and they're very quickly. But I've learned how to discern, okay, let's boil this down to two or three and then we'll go down to one. In my own head, I'm not saying all that out loud. On occasion, then I'll say, I have a few thoughts. Do you want to hear those? Yes, we do. Okay, well, here's what I'm thinking. We could go, I just did this a couple hours ago. We could go through one of these three doors do any of those sound appealing to you? Then I can narrow it down. But even within that, there's always more and more options. And people talk about sevens with options as if we're just flaky and scattered. To me, it's a very creative place. It only gets difficult and scattered when I'm, it's out of control for me. I, there's so many. And now I've created my own anxiety. But in reality, when I Again, when I was practicing medicine, when I'm working with coaching, people are looking for help and hope. I'm great with that. And because I've worked with this a lot, I can, I can tone it down, narrow it down so that I don't overwhelm people. Vicky, there's something you said about talking a lot, 
but you are also at the same time a very private person. How do these two live together? Hmm. I like that question too. Um, well, I think both, I'm guessing, not that everything has to be attributed to some area, but I'm guessing my navigating kind of plays in there. And I have deliberately cultivated my five. Now, I was like this as back far back as I can remember. So people have often felt that they don't know me back in high school and early days because I do have another value that sits with that privacy. So when I was dating guys as a young young girl, um, I was never one of those gals who hung out with the girlfriends and talked about the boyfriends. That was disrespectful in my view. This is my relationship. This is that fellow. He doesn't deserve to be shared with other women, girls. So that's been just who I am. And so there's a privacy that feels like respectfulness to myself and others or the dynamic or the relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or friendship, that to me just makes sense. But I'm also not one to feel like I want to share things that are kind of sacred and precious if people aren't going to handle it well. And frankly, I grew up in a household where my dad was a lawyer in a small town. The code in the household was confidentiality. My dad never spoke about his clients in front of us kids. Now, if he and mom did, I don't know. So I grew up believing, <laughs> naively, that the world was a confidential place. And if I share with something with you because I want to let you into that, that you would hold it in confidence and respect for me. Oh, no. So I discovered <laughs> people don't hmm. live that way. And I got hurt. And it reinforced, you better be discerning about who you let in, how far you let in them in, and to what part of your sacred, precious things. So there's something interesting in that to me because, um, you know, you're circumstances are one, certainly one element of it, right? And I find similar things in pretty much all sevens, right? Of this holding back of the details. In fact, I think, I don't know if it was Naranjo or Achazo who referred to uh, the seven as the charlatan, right? In the sense that they tend to have a facade of the happy, positive, pleasant, good person. Um, and that can be ingrained in positive ethical ways like you're talking about, right? Some things just aren't appropriate to talk about. But it can also be a way in some sevens of uh, reserving options, right? If I don't reveal, then I can kind of maneuver in the background, right? Of, you know, I still have choices because I haven't committed myself to certain things, right? So there is this privacy about sevens. Okay, and even the sevens who seem like real motor mouths and who say things that, you know, you know, other people might not say, there's still this element of holding back, right? I see it in the sevens in my life of just, nah, I, you know, there's, there's nothing good can come from sharing that. So, uh, so they, they hold things back. Is it sort of a, a, a curating of a more positive affect or image or something like that? Or is it just an attempt to not feel trapped by people knowing information that could be used against you? Or is there other the options latter. there? Okay. The latter yeah. for me. I don't, not that I can't judge people and haven't don't, but I don't naturally live in a huge judgment mindset. 
but I, I find myself to be a very thoughtful and sensitive person. So I'm more going to curate so that someone isn't going to either hurt me, use something against me, be disrespectful of what I think consider to be very precious to myself. Because I'm not a, I don't just talk to talk. <laughs> I tend to talk about things that are important to me. And therefore, if I'm going to share something, I'm not doing that cavalierly. I'm doing it with thought. And I'm letting it into a place that I have expectation of equal respect and people tend to judge and have opinions. And I don't really want to even have to entertain that stuff. And I don't want to be hurt. I th- and, and I don't want to let that last statement just drop too, right? Because the avoidance of unpleasantness is a seven-ish characteristic. And in many ways, it's good. It makes them pleasant people to be around. And not just because they're always happy and positive, but they... You know, they just have this gift for seeing the good and, uh, you know, staying away from things that bring people down. And in some sevens, it can be um, a problem, right, of not addressing things. One of my sons is a seven, and he has a tendency to not address things because of fear of disappointment, right? So if he doesn't if he, if he struggles to get his homework done or if he doesn't understand something, he'll kind of just hope it goes away rather than come to me and say, hey, I need help with this, hmm. right? Because there's a part of him, no matter how many times I tell him, no, come come to me, that's what I'm here for, he doesn't want to disappoint me, hmm. right? He, he wants, you know, he lives in this fear of me thinking poorly of him in some way because that would just make him sad. So he can actually err in the other direction of doing things that ultimately do irritate me because if you would just come to me about this, I'd have gladly helped you. Now we have a problem, right? So it is something sevens need to watch out for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it's, you could expect a kid to behave like that with their parents. Yeah. But I've seen it in so many sevens that at some level, in some domain, they have these feeling of sense of incompetency. They're not completely incompetent, but there's some area in which I might, I feel I'm not totally competent and I try to compensate for it or hide it, display other charms so that people don't see it. It's different ways of dealing with that. Do you resonate with that at all, Becky? Is that something that you go through? Yeah, I definitely feel incompetent in some areas that I feel like I should be because I'm smart. I'm smart enough to do this, but I can't. So, for instance, I since I was in high school and we'd have to write papers, and the teacher would say, well, just write, this, just write your outline and write the paper. I cannot do that. To this day, I don't do that well. And so I want to hide that from people who are that's like nothing to them because it looks so fundamental and so easy. So I would have to write the paper, go back, figure out what I said, and put it in some kind of a format and then go from there. Hmm. Because my mind thinks more pattern-like. I don't know how to do A to B to C to D as easily. Mm-hmm. I can do that, but it doesn't come naturally. So I could share it with my paper with someone who is good at that. And in 10 minutes, they'd say, well, here's your order and here are your transitions. Mm. And so it makes me feel even 
I end up feeling even more inadequate that it feels as if everybody should and can do that. And it's not how I am wired. So to this day, I feel shy about asking for help. And I remember my dad getting on my case in, when I was a junior in high school because I did ask for help. And he said, no, you do your own work. And that stuck with me because I thought, wow, okay, to ask for help on something I'm not good at, now what do I do? So it reinforced the independence. I have a very strong independent nature. So then there's a judgment on top of that. So you can also see how this plays into why would I want to open up <laughs> and share with people things that they're just going to look at me like, well, duh, everybody can do that when it's not easy for me. Any more than things that come like the back of my hand are not easy for other people. Hmm. I had to face my own judgments around that in terms of different physicians that I worked with who weren't good at the human relationship part. And I'm not a believer in dinging all physicians and surgeons for that because I think that's very unfair. But some people weren't as skilled as I was. So they'd say, Becky, you go do that. So I'd handle the difficult interactions in the emergency room with families and so on and so forth, along with sewing people up because I could do the personal relationship stuff as well as the manual skill. And so I would judge them in my head. Well, why can't they do this? Why don't they care? And so I would judge them as not caring. No, they did. They cared about the people enough to say, Becky, you go do that. Hmm. So I had to come to terms with my own judgments around things that come so easily to me that instead I could help people with that. I could help people gain those skills if they want them instead of sitting back and saying, well, what's wrong with them? That was really an important juncture in my life many years ago because mm. I stopped, um, I, I, I saw it more honestly and that I was doing the very same thing in a different category that people did to me. Would you say that that has something to do with the connecting point to one that, that seems to smell a little bit of one? I think so. I think so. I think that my, my judgment of them was an arrogance and, and not that all ones are arrogant or arrogant all the time, but there is that element of the one that can be arrogant and self-righteous and say, well, I'm better at this than you, so sorry. Um, and so I did have to face that straight on. Mm. And I, was, I do have that element in me. I'll, I'll self-coach and really ask myself the hard questions and do that. And so I, I do find that the part of one that I go to that's useful is focus. That really helps me a lot. And although Mario mentioned something I think about freedom there, I forget now, and a few minutes ago, I see the five as my, my freedom place. Now, hmm. both give me freedom because when I'm focused, I have more freedom, but also I get a ton of freedom by the deliberate cultivation of my five, which I've done for many years now. Hmm. And it's helped me build a respect, because that's kind of the heart of the topic we're on here, I think, too, my respect for space, for people, for their way, for how they think, how they feel, not invading people with my enthusiasm even. I can get enthusiasm and say, what are you thinking about? Well, that's not my business. They can share if they want. Mm. And I, I think it's important to point out that both connecting points are accessed to reinforce the preferred strategy, right? So if what I'm looking for is stimulation in some way, 
I get more of that through having freedom and choices and options. And I'll use both striving to feel perfect and striving to feel detached as a way to uh, maintain that sense. I either withdraw from people and hold back and therefore that gives me freedom or I become perfectionistic and try to get things in order in order to get freedom in that mm. one sort of space. What does the cultivating of that five space look like for you? Oh, wow. Uh, well, one example is I remember coming home from the university one day and I was just spent. I was so tired. And I'd given and given and given and given all day. And I remember walking into my place, turning around and turning the deadbolt with some fervor. As I slammed it shut, I said, now they can't get to me. Mm. And I saw that as the not so great expression of detachment because it was so vivid and so powerful inside. Now, it was totally silent and I'm there by myself. But I knew what I was doing hmm. because I didn't know how to do the boundaries well. And I still work with that. It doesn't come always easily. I, I take that back. It comes very easily in medicine. It comes very easily in coaching in my work. It's harder in personal relationships, the boundary part. Interesting. So I've, I've learned that. I've also watched fives I admire and how they will set a boundary and not futz and worry about how the other person felt about the boundary. I, as, as a navigator maybe, or just Becky, can worry about, well, I don't know if they are okay with that. Well, I said it because it was a boundary I needed for my own well-being, so okay. <laughs> I also have played a lot with that slider between connection and detachment for myself because I connect deeply and, and easily with people all the time, strangers or work personal or work. And so the detachment helps me feel that I can have and deserve the space I want. So going back to Maria Jose's question about privacy, as a teenager, my mother hated the fact that I was private about my life. She was always poking at that, prodding and demanding. And I, I struggled with that. As I get older, I realize I'm just like healthy fives that I know, I'm entitled to my space, my mental space, my emotional space, my physical space, my spiritual space. And so to relax in a relaxed way, set those boundaries and reside there, even if others aren't so happy about that, is okay. I likewise extend that to others much more naturally. I have invaded other people's spaces on all those levels unintentionally. And I realize now how that can be disrespectful. I think those are the things that jump out at, I mean, I could talk a long time about that because I've been very purposeful for many years watching yeah. fives that I admire, not just fives in general. That makes sense. Um, well, or even seeing when people do it in ways that I don't feel comfortable with how, okay, I would like to do that, but not that way. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's, it's interesting that I've been, Interesting to me, at least. Um, I've, been, <laughs> I've been coaching sevens lately. And there's something about dealing with issues that they have to work on that it, it's challenging. So our experience coaching sevens many times is that once you get to the issue, suddenly it's like 
it disappears. It's, it's not an issue anymore for the sevens. They are, it's not that bad. I have it handled. And they kind of... It's the whack-a-mole. Yes. And mm. I'm not saying that it's your case, Becky, but I, I we want sometimes like to share wh- how we work with the different types. And, and one thing that works in that regard is to more kind of have a more future orientation, have a vision of where they want to get instead of spending too much time looking at the problems they have. So when faced with, okay, so this is what I want to accomplish. This is where I want to be. Then whatever steps I need to take to get there seem more exciting than spending time on what I have to fix. Might end up being the same thing, but it works better with sevens. Uh, So I've been not only working with sevens on that, but with people who have um, reports that are sevens or colleagues, uh, which they have a hard time kind of motivating or dealing with certain issues. And this future orientation, uh, I think it's a better way, works better with sevens than just expecting them to look at the problem and spend a lot of time kind of wanting to digest it and fix it. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example of how you know we use this strategy, right? Because sevens do have this future orientation, and they do want to move towards something positive, and so you leverage that instead of saying, "No, no, no, we got to go back and fix this thing that's wrong with you," right? It's okay. Where do you want to get, and how do you close the gap from where you are now to where you want to be? Uh, so oftentimes in these episodes, we like to talk about the entrenched attitudes and the contradictions of the type. So Mario, why don't you just give us a quick up- explanation yeah. of those two things? So uh, again, because we can have a distorted relationship with the two connecting points, right? In some ways they do, again, help out in us feeling the strategy we want to feel. We can also distort them or repress them or hold on to them in a negative way. And usually what that looks like when the when the seven has sort of a dysfunctional relationship with the strategy at point five, they want to withdraw in the ways that Becky was talking about it in ways that are pretty healthy, but they feel guilty about it, right? So they vacillate back and forth between enthusiasm and withdrawal, right? It's kind of like they just disappear in a way sometimes, you know, where did they go? And everybody thinks that sevens leave the party to go to another party. When the reality is they're leaving the party just to go home, right? Mm. Because they're they're tired of it and exhausted. And uh, when it looks at the other direction, the relationship to point one, it turns into this need for approval. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about enough in the literature about the sevens is their desire to make other people happy and the desire to you know be thought well of. I want you to like me. I want you to think well of me. So I'm going to, you know, seek approval and feed you the things that I need you to see. So again, it allows me to do the things that I really want to do. You know, I, I would like to comment on that. I yeah. I have deliberately worked on that mm-hmm. because it's not in alignment with my wanting to be a very real and authentic person. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell a story that one time, not all that many years, well, some some years ago, my I called up my parents and I said, I'm coming down for the weekend. My parents never knew the Enneagram till the day they died. But I was in a depressed and un, 
unhappy place. I was going through a lot of difficult things. They didn't know that. They lived eight hours away. And I wouldn't have shared it. <laughs> uh, so when I said, I'm coming down, my mom said, oh my gosh, now we're going to have a good time. Becky's going to come. Mm. Now we're going to have a good weekend. And because I'd been working on this very thing, I, I, I just held my breath for a moment because I thought, okay, you have a choice. Are you going to be real? Or are you going to play the, the company line here, so to speak, that they don't even know they're offering? And I said, you know, mom, I'm, I'm really not in a very good place right now. And so I can't promise that, but we're, we're still going to enjoy ourselves. And I felt really good about that because I was honest. And I let her know that this is the reality. I can't be the picker-upper. <laughs> and we had a very different weekend. We had a very intimate and meaningful weekend. They got to be parents in different ways. I got to be the kid in different ways. Maybe more both going toward more shared adult type of conversations. And it was very relaxing. So it was... It was those moments when we do work on something and then we are presented with the opportunity. Can we take it? And I never forgot that because it was meaningful to me. It was important to me. And then I continued it from there on. So approval is a tricky thing. I still want approval. And I still think I seek it in ways I don't even realize I am. But on the other hand, I want to be experienced as real. So that's more genuine and important to me more and more these days than approval. Hmm. There's approval coming. I'd like it to be for the real Becky showing up as genuinely as possible with another mm -hmm. real person. Mm -hmm. That's much more satisfying to Mario's early comment about satisfaction. That's mm. satisfying to me. Is there any other myths about the seven that you feel that could be addressed? That it's fabulous being a seven? Mm. <laughs> How many times people said, oh, I wish I was oh I gosh. was a seven. Oh, gosh, you're so lucky. And you know what? Honestly, I feel that way. Mm. I'm pretty darn happy to be where I live. And it's not all a bowl of cherries. Mm -hmm. Because the things we're talking about, although they don't sound challenging, are challenging to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's hard to face some of these things and face... The, the pain it causes me as well as the pain it causes other people to be me. Mm. And when does that happen and when doesn't it? So I, frankly, yes, I, I'm very happy. And, and a lot of my happiness comes from, I do have an innate resilience. I don't have to work a whole lot at that. And I like my independence. I, I like my ability to see and be very happy with some very small moments very small moments. My brother used to say, you're a real cheap date because it doesn't take much to make <laughs> me happy. And um, so those things are wonderful. I, I can't argue with that. And if I didn't have that, I would feel a huge loss to have all of these things that I can savor moments. I can be easily pleased and delighted in you, you know, and delighted in you in ways that you may not even see are delightful. And it's genuine, you know, so there's that. But then there's, there's the hard things that, that create anxiety for me or displeasure or, you know, on and on that we've talked about. So that's one myth. I would like to say, though, it's, it's another difficult thing to set up a fantasy 
in your own mind that you think can be reality, and then it doesn't happen, whether it's involving another person or not. And so that disappointment is real, and it's it's true, and we don't have to always go there. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I've learned, I used to have, on my birthdays, I used to have... I just love my birthday and I've always wanted to be special and whatever that meant. I didn't have just one thing it meant, but it needs to be exciting. And so I would wait all day and maybe somebody would take me out to dinner or this or that and be like, oh, okay, well, I was okay. And then the night's over, the day's over. So probably 20, 25 years ago, I said to myself, you know, Becky, there's something wrong with this picture and it's you. You're setting this up that someone else is supposed to bring you all of this wonderful thing, and if they don't come through, then your day's ruined. So I said, the ownership is on you. And so how about if you start celebrating you from the moment you wake up, if somebody does something else, great. It's a cherry on the cake, but it's not contingent. And ever since I do that every year, I take the whole day off for my birthday if I can, and I do everything that in the spontaneous moment feels pleasurable to me. It could be journaling and being quiet. One time I was on jury duty. I thought, well, how am I going to pull this one off? <laughs> I did. So, you know, it, it was something about the ownership. I'm big on ownership of my own satisfaction, my own, my own stuff. So, hmm. Well, Becky, thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing with us the experience of sevenness. And uh, I, I really think it's, I have some dear, dear friends that are in that seven space and it, it pains me how much they're char characterized, um, caricaturized. There it is. And so I really feel like you, you represented them well and, and actually got to some really nuanced places that hopefully our listeners can take to heart. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for being here, Becky. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 